from Hayama, Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. P.W. Singer will join us to discuss robotic warfare. So, stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok Science Show. Well, modern warfare has become increasingly dependent on technology and automation, even to the point of adopting robotic devices. But how much and how far will such technological advances take us, and what will be the consequences for future engagements? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. P.W. Singer. Dr. Singer is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and at 33, the youngest person to hold that position. He has written extensively on these issues, including two previous books, Corporate Warrior and Children at War, and his latest book, Wired for War, The Robotics Revolution and Conflict in the 21st Century, explores this issue for a general audience. Dr. Singer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's certainly our pleasure. You've written two previous books, one dealing with private contractors and the other with child soldiers. How did you become interested in robots and warfare? Yeah, there is a thread that links them. The short version is that because robots are really fracking cool, but the long version is that I've been fascinated by how the who of war is changing. And my first book looked at private military contractors. That is, our concept of the who of war has always been a soldier in uniform fighting for their nation, motivated by patriotism. Well, guess what? More than half the people fighting for us in Iraq are private contractors, not in uniform, not solely motivated by patriotism. They're there on a contract. They're there to make money. And the next book looked at the darker side of this change in who of war. About one out of every 10 soldiers in the world are children. And that's something we have to own up to. And then this new book, Wired for War, is about the change of the who of war at the very most fundamental level. That is, what does it mean to be using the robotics of science fiction now in very real-world battlefields? And just to give you a sense of the size and scale of this, to show how it's not just science fiction, we went into Iraq with a handful of drones, pilotless planes, UAVs, so to speak. We now have over 7,000 in the inventory. Our military went into Iraq with zero unmanned ground vehicles used in the invasion. We now have 12,000. And as one guy put it to me, you know, these are the Model T Fords, the right flyers compared to what's coming soon. And one Air Force three-star general put it this way, he said, we'll soon be talking about tens of thousands of robots. And so I've just been struck by how the wars that we plan for are not always the wars that we get. And one of the aspects is this assumption of who fights war is we come at it with a 20th century assumption, and yet the 21st century reality is very different. And so for the last several years, I went around basically interviewing anyone and everyone that connected to the robots and war field. So everything from the scientists to the science fiction authors who inspire them to 
what it's like to be a 19-year-old drone pilot sitting in Nevada but flying a drone that's over Iraq or Afghanistan, what it's like to be a four-star general commanding force that's mixing both machines and man, what it's like to be a politician, and how does it affect when you go in, when you choose to carry out strikes and when you don't. But I also wanted to know the other side of the equation, and so I went out, and there's interviews in the book of everything from Iraqi insurgents, what do they think about our robots, to people at the Red Cross, at Human Rights Watch, news journalists in Lebanon and Pakistan. And so really it's trying to gather all those really cool, fun, exciting, scary stories, but then question what are the ripple effects onto our law and our society, our politics, and our, how we fight wars. Hmm. What do you think was the most striking thing you discovered after interviewing all these different people? There's, you know, so much striking that I had to write a whole book about it. Um, you know, so it's hard to pick out just one. I, I think, you know, a couple of things were pretty interesting or maybe surprising. One was that a consistent thread, you know, whether I was meeting with someone who was a robot scientist or special forces officer fighting terrorists in Afghanistan or someone with a political background, there was one thread that always came up, and it was this concern that this may not be such a good thing to be able to go to war without risk, without cost, that it may make you more cavalier about the use of force. One of the military officers I met with put it this way, that anything that makes it easier to go to war is not necessarily a good thing. I thought that was really interesting that you saw this, not just people who were working at Human Rights Watch, but also Green Beret saying the very same thing. The other thing that was I had a lot of fun with, because you know I grew up loving science, science fiction. I'm the kind of kid who grew up, I had Star Wars bedsheets. It was pretty amazing to see the influence of science fiction in a very real way. People in the military openly talking about how they got, oh, I got this idea for this system when I was sitting watching Star Wars Empire Strikes Back on my TV with my kid. And they went, huh, we could build something just like that. Or, and so they're very open about it. So that set me off on a journey to meet with all the science fiction authors to try and pull that thread a little bit further. And the thing then was surprising is how many of them actually quietly consult for the military. And that was just remarkable to learn as well. And certainly a lot of the science fiction authors have thought about the uh, social implications of uh, using robots in warfare. Oh, the, the implications of it are in so many different ways. good way of putting this how Bill Gates described robotics. And he said, robotics is right now where the computer industry was around 1980. And the idea is that it's just primarily used by the military, but for a very limited set of applications. And that we're going to see a widening of the set of applications within the military realm. But more importantly, they'll start to play in the civilian realm in a whole new way. And he was looking at the positive and saying their systems will get to the point where we won't call them robots anymore, much like we don't call them computers anymore. I have a computer in my kitchen. It's a microwave oven. I just don't call it that. I have a computer in my pocket right now. It's an iPod. It's, I just don't call it that. And they, this may well happen with robotics as well. We're already seeing the early stages of that. You know, the new Lexus SUV parallel parks itself. We just don't call it a robot car. But then the darker side of this is that while the technology may create lots of new possibilities in all new ways, there's also some ripple effects that we're not ready for. So with the computer, for example, and the Internet, it was things like privacy and legal questions that surrounded that. Same thing with robotics. We may have Moore's Law getting 
better and better advanced systems in warfare, but it doesn't mean we haven't gotten rid of Murphy's Law. You know, our systems don't always work out the way we planned. And you have various incidents of people actually being harmed by robots in action. One of the scenes in the book, it happened just last year, a anti-aircraft cannon in South Africa had a software glitch. Instead of shooting upwards during a training exercise, it leveled and fired in a circle. Nine soldiers were killed because of a software glitch. Who do you hold responsible for that? We don't have a good answer. Isn't also the assumption is that because we have this technological might that we're uh, automatically destined to win when in fact that is not necessarily the case? Yeah, that was one of the things that came out very quickly. The whole concept that um, particularly Donald Rumsfeld had that technology is a silver bullet solution to all our problems and that we can control the kind of wars we want has turned out not to be the case even with these very sophisticated robotics. The fog of war is still there. As I mentioned, you have mistakes, you have miscommunications, you have bad intelligence. Look, garbage in, garbage out is true not only for software, it's true for intelligence and warfare as well. We, on three separate occasions, have thought we got bin Laden with a predator drone strike and killed the wrong persons. One time it was an Afghan civilian who just was unlucky enough to look like bin Laden. The other side, the enemy, gets a vote. There is very much a back and forth of technology in the insurgency in Iraq. The insurgents have developed 90 different ways to detonate IEDs. They've developed certain kinds of ambushes for our robotics. They've even captured one of our robots and turned it into a mobile IED. There's a broader lesson here for the U.S., and it's something that may be a little bit scary. In technology and in war, there's no such thing as a permanent first-mover advantage. That is, I don't use a Wang computer anymore. I don't play Atari video games anymore. Same thing in war. The British were the first ones to develop the tank. The Germans were the ones to figure out how to fight with a tank better. And when it comes to robotics, the U.S. military is definitely ahead right now. But there are 43 other countries working on military robotics today. And that is everything from countries like the United Kingdom and France and Israel to countries like Iran, Pakistan, Russia, China. And so a question for the U.S. is, we may be ahead right now, but where does the state of our manufacturing, where does the state of our education, particularly in the sciences and in mathematics, take us in this realm? Or another way of putting it, what does it mean to be using more and more soldiers whose hardware is made in China and whose software is written in India? The components for this uh, are, in a sense, open source, so that really anybody could really build these devices, even terrorists. And that's a scary, scary, scary direction. These technologies are not like something akin to the aircraft carrier or the atomic bomb, where you need this huge industrial structure to build them. A lot of them, as you mentioned, are open source and use off-the-shelf technologies. Some of them are even do-it-yourself. For about $1,000, you can build your own version of the Raven drone, which is one of the drones that our soldiers use in Iraq. Now, that means that you have a flattening effect in warfare and lethal technologies. It's not just militaries that can access them. And the terrorism side of this is something that we should be concerned about. During the war between Israel and Hezbollah, which a lot of people consider as a terrorist group. Hezbollah may not be a state government, may not have a military, but it flew four different drones back at Israel. You can go online right now and remotely detonate an IED in Iraq while sitting at your home computer via one of these radical websites. 
There is a person who appears in the book, Richard Clark. He's a very controversial counterterrorism expert who worked for both the Bush administration and for the Clinton administration. He was the fellow that a lot of people may have heard of because he was the one who warned about 9-11 and wasn't listened to. He sees the future of terrorism being a cross between al-Qaeda 2.0 and the next generation version of the Unabomber. And what he meant is two things. One, terrorists are able to use these technologies to carry out attacks without having to be suicidal. That is, you don't have to persuade a robot that it's going to be received by 70 virgins in heaven to convince it to blow itself up. But he also saw the rise of a new form of terrorism, and that's the next generation form of the Unabomber. What he meant there is that there are certain people like the Unabomber that can't digest all the change that's going on around them. And in fact, the technology itself, all that change leads them into violence. It's what we can conceive of as the rise of the neo-Luddites, people who are so upset about technology and all the change that a very small minority of them commits violence against it. That is a scary, scary thought. Mm. And in fact, one of the people who appears in the book is a scientist for DARPA who says, look, for $50,000, if I wanted to, I could shut down the entire island of Manhattan. Another great quote in the book that sort of uh, is pretty chilling is from one of the science fiction authors who says, look, if I can imagine it, what do you think a person with the identity of a Timothy McVeigh-like thinking could do? Aren't there some roboticists that refuse to engage in building for uh, the war machine? Yeah, and one of the things we're seeing with this technology is a lot of what played out with the atomic technology, which is another technology that, that sort of rewrote the rules of the game when it came to war, um, posed new questions, new possibilities, led to this thing called the Cold War, which had never existed before, where you had two superpowers that were in competition but didn't fight in open combat, You know, did it through proxies, led to the space race. You know, That's the thing of, of robotics is it's not just the technology that's interesting to me, but the ripple effects. But the same thing that happened with the early atomic scientists is some of them reached the point where they said, my gosh, what have we created? And so the same people who helped invent the atomic bomb also helped invent the arms control movement that went against the atomic bomb. And so the refuseniks are their parallel in the robotics field. They're robot scientists who just say no. They're robot scientists who won't take Pentagon funding and won't sell to the Pentagon. They're a real interesting story because they, they're very dedicated and they have this very strong sense of ethics. But they also question to each other as to whether it's all futile. Because one of the things of our um, academic field is the whole publisher parish mentality. Everything that they work on, even if it's just for the good, has to be published. And one of them says, you know, look, I know what I'm working on is ultimately going to be used by the Pentagon. But at least I feel to myself I'm not going to be to blame when it goes awry. Another guy, he used to take this funding, and then he now he not only builds robotic toys but runs summer camps for underprivileged kids to come learn how to build robotics but also sort of get a sense of dedication, learn sciences. And it's just this really exciting story. Now, the twist of it is that he takes funding from Microsoft. And so I remember asking him, you know, isn't it just spooky taking money from Microsoft as it is from the Pentagon? And he kind of chuckled and said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do we set the rules for a human-robot conflict? 
there's a scene in the book that sort of captures how we're grasping at straws right now when it comes to these laws of war. I went to visit Human Rights Watch, and two of the senior leaders at the organization get in an argument in front of me where they argue whether it's the Geneva Conventions that should guide us or it's the Star Trek Prime Directive. <laughs> I'm just watching this going, oh my gosh, this illustrates just how we're at a loss of 20th century technologies, sorry, 20th century laws of war and 21st century technologies. And that's a gap in the field. Now, the thing that's interesting to me is that so many people, when they talk about ethics and robotics, want to talk about things like Asimov's laws, you know, how you should equip the robot to have a sense of ethics. There's a lot of problems with that. You know, one is, of course, that Asimov He's writing fiction, and he, Asimov writes the laws as a plot device, you know, and they always break the laws in the end. The other is that Asimov's laws are written in English. You can't program them. But the important thing is, you know, when you look at our real world, we're designing robots specifically to violate Asimov's laws. You know, you don't build a robot armed with a machine gun or a predator drone with a Hellfire missile not to harm humans. That's the whole point of it. The other maybe they may not want them in our real world. Do I want a robot that, as Asimov laid out, takes instruction from any human that it runs into? Well, do I want a robot that, if it runs into Osama bin Laden, will take instruction from him? Probably not. And so the thing, though, for me is that there's a broader question here when it comes to this issue of ethics and laws of war that surround robotics, is that it's not so much the systems. We should be talking about the ethics of the people behind the systems, and that takes us into a lot of fascinating directions that, you know, sound like sci-fi but need to be wrestled with. For example, who gets to control these systems? Should they just be military? How about homeland security? Am I okay with the fact that right now it has three drones, three predator drones that it's using to cover border security? How about the local police force? Am I comfortable with them having it? The LA Police Department is purchasing a drone to park over a high crime neighborhood. Am I okay with that? You know, these are, how about me? Should I be allowed to have my own gun armed robot? Is that my Second Amendment right? Well, guess what? This is not theoretic anymore. We're entering this space. The book's trying to, you know, one, tell a lot of cool, fun, exciting, neat stories. You meet a lot of just so many different diverse people. And it was just so much fun going around gathering these stories. But the second was the sense that by doing that, we could shine a light on some of the trends that are out there that need to be talked about and sort of give us a framework of understanding for how we can wrestle with it. You know, a model for me was a book like Fast Food Nation, you know, which is about the fast food industry, companies like McDonald's, and they just don't say, here's McDonald's, I'm going to tell you about it. The author gathered the stories of everything from why does the farmer raise the potatoes that are used in the French fry to why does the fellow who works as the fry cook end up in that job. And the idea was that you're not only going to understand a lot about McDonald's, but you're going to understand about the broader American economy and how it's changing. And that's the same thing here is you not only get a sense of what's happening with the technology and the experiences of the people all around it, but also get a sense of maybe what's going on bigger in our politics and wars today. Well, it really is a very fascinating book. The new book is called Wired for War, The Robotics Revolution and Conflict in the 21st Century. Uh, Dr. Singer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. 
I appreciate it. And you were just listening to Dr. P.W. Singer discussing robotic warfare. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Oh, Yoshimi, they don't believe it, but you won't let those robots defeat me, Yoshimi, they don't believe it, but you Alright, here we go. Ready to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, human or robot? So for the falling five supposed people, uh, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they're actually human or are in fact a robot. Uh, Dr. Singer, uh, would you like to play the game? Okay, well I'll do my best. I'm a little scared by the, the power of the Grokatron. <laughs> All right, here we go. Person number one, human or robot, former CEO of Microsoft, Bill Gates. <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting. I was at the TED conference recently and the, where he famously released the mosquitoes into the air, and none of them went after him. <laughs> so that may be an indicator of robot. I don't know. Uh, number two is the uh, golfer Tiger Woods. Ooh, that that's human because a robot would not have had the issues with the broken leg recently. Uh, number three is uh, the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. That is human because robots would not, besides not smoking cigars, they also uh, wouldn't have had the issues he's had with the ladies. <laughs> okay, uh, number four, it's the real estate mogul Donald Trump. I got to say, human, no self-respecting robot would have hair like that. <laughs> All right, and finally, number five, it's the new president of the United States, Barack Obama. Most definitely human. His sense of style and cool factor, we just have not been able to design machines like that yet. I saw him dance on the Ellen DeGeneres show, and he did not do the robot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Singer, I do want to thank you for sticking around, playing the game, uh, the Grokatron 5000, and of course talking about your book, which is Wired for War, the Robotics Revolution and Conflict in the 21st Century. Uh, thank you again. All right. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of Grok Science. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.